what had happened was the Dayton Art Institute was formed thanks to amazing community, and we are now celebrating our 100 years and going into the next 100 years. Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and I have an artsy-fartsy show for you today about one of Dayton's shiniest birthday gals. I'm talking about the Dayton Art Institute, which turned 100 years old last year. There is a reason I call the museum a she. Women Power made it possible, as museum director Michael Redeker and Eric Brockman, the communication manager, explain in this episode. We talk about the socialite who shelled out two million buckaroos how a female museum director worked those baller moves and got us the Monet, the origins of the art ball in Oktoberfest, and the museum's next 100 years. The What Happened Was podcast is recorded in the WHIO radio studios in always sparkling Dayton, Ohio. Like and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you find your favorite ear candy. Now here's my chat with Michael and Eric, which was recorded at the end of last year. Thanks for coming in here. I appreciate it. You're welcome. We're glad to be here. Yeah, always happy to be here. So this is a big year for the Art Institute, right? Right. It's our centennial year celebrating 100 years of the signing of our letters of incorporation. The most fun story we have is how we got the Monet. I was going to ask you about the Monet. Beautiful Monet. It's ranked in one of his top of the water lilies. That came about from a previous director. She lost her name. Esther Seaver. Esther Seaver. I believe she was the first female director. Yes, of the museum. And Esther wrote a letter to a gentleman who lived in New York City. She knew he had this piece. She had learned through folklore that he didn't have ancestors. It wouldn't be left to any family member. And it likely would go to one of the big museums in New York City where it may or may not be seen. Really? She wrote a letter and said, if you want your painting to make a big impact, why don't you give it to a museum like the Dayton Art Institute? We have those that that correspondence exchange. That's a baller move right there. Oh, she was she really made it happen. The piece came in a crate and was shipped within a couple weeks afterwards. He donated it. And the story is he never came to visit it and he never came to the museum, but he was so inspired by her letter that he made the gift. Yeah, that's an amazing story because yeah. the thing, well, I'm going to just ask this man for his big fancy right. art right. piece. And it goes back to that old theory, and we say it when fundraising, or I don't get unless you ask. And right. we still do that. There's times we'll find out someone has an important piece in their collection. It's a little different than that now. We'll go meet with them and talk about what their plans are for the piece. And sometimes people say, oh, my kids want. Or we've met with people who said the piece has become too famous. I don't want it to be in my kid's home because it makes me nervous that it's in a private home. And people should see art. You know how you said it's a baller move? I really always attribute the building of the Dayton Art Institute was because of women. And it was women at often... now. Interesting at that time in the 50s, a woman was a director of a museum. She was pushing and the museum was letting her do that because that wasn't always the head, wasn't always a woman. But a lot of women were the spouses of businessmen. Okay. So Julia Shaw Patterson Carnell, who is our founding matriarch, she gave the $2 million to build the new building in 1930. The Patterson comes from, she was the wife of Frank Patterson, who was the brother of John Patterson, who founded NCR. Frank died young, and she ended up marrying Harry Carnell. But Julia, I always say, if she'd have lived in a different time, she was a socialite, she was a philanthropist, but she would have been a kick-ass businesswoman. I say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, you could say kick-ass. Kick-ass. She was Mm -hmm. a kick-ass businesswoman because she made it happen. And as the story goes with her, 
when she was raising all the money, she had all the benefactors lined up and she was going to put the $2 million into a start an endowment for us. You think of that money today, what our endowment would have been would be enormous. Right. She told the board after the Great Depression when all the benefactors pulled out and the building was already in construction that they could take the $2 million and complete as much of the building as possible. Wow. So bittersweet that we got this amazing Italian Renaissance museum. The bitter part of it is, had the depression not happened, it would have been built through the people she had raised the money from, and the $2 million would have gone in the endowment. You would have been like sitting on riches. Right. Right, so yeah. So we've been, and we say this, we've been chronically under-endowed ever since. It's a museum of our size with the collection we have and the facility we have and what it takes to care for it should have about a $45 million endowment. We're under half, which for a lot of nonprofits in town is a lot of money. You know, that 22, 23 million, which we've grown some. And you kind of pushed that in the last couple of years. We've been pushing that as part of our centennial campaign. If people want to make a gift, first give to the centennial. There's certainly capital projects we're working on, but investing now is going to make sure we're ready for the next centennial or bicentennial in 200 years that we're setting it up for the future. You say these women pushed these whole things. Did they see this coming as a thing that was going to last? Or what do you think they thought it was going to be ultimately? No, I really think that Julia knew it would last. I think she thought if Dayton was going to be a city that people appreciated and wanted to live in and had business, that she knew it had to have a cultural life. She didn't just help found the museum. She's one of the founding members of the Dayton Foundation, major contributor to Miami Valley Hospital, to the Women's Club, on and on and on. She was building a community that she knew people wanted to live in and what they needed. They needed a hospital. They needed a museum. She had a lot of vision. And I mean, it's strange to think. We sometimes think, what would Julia do? Really? What would she have wanted? And they thought that when they finished, so you know where the contemporary gallery is in the rotunda, that was her original vision. Now, it wouldn't have been a contemporary gallery or a contemporary rotunda, but she wanted it to continue in a pattern you could walk around without having to back up. When I was a kid, you would hit the end and have to turn around and walk backwards through it again. That was her vision. What was her backstory? She came from a great family of wealth. Her father was a businessman of the last turn of the century. So she grew up in wealth and traveled the world. That's why she knew she wanted an Italian Renaissance building. She had seen them. Mm -hmm. Um, There were specific ones she referred to that the architect, Edward B. Green and his sons, referenced when they were building. And you can see the similarities in the design. She was a world traveler at a time when people didn't have the opportunity to travel like we do today. And she saw a lot of the world. Being she came from a family of wealth, at that time you would marry into a family of wealth. It wasn't necessarily love at first sight. And I don't know that part of their story, but I know that wealth married wealth. Right. So her wealth grew. They had three children together. And Jefferson Patterson, her son, carried on her legacy after she died in 1944, well into the 70s. So The Patterson and NCR name have been a part of the museum since its beginning. Interesting, as we sit in an NCR building now, I wonder what she would think of the change and NCR leaving and all that. But she was a visionary. I truly believe we wouldn't have a museum. Awesome story. There were many other women, Virginia Kettering. Certainly, she left her legacy all over the Dayton community, but... She and Julia built our Asian art collection, which is considered one of the finest in the nation. She continued that collecting, that drive, that making sure we had staff. The only two endowed positions at the museum are Kettering. 
So you can see these highlights of women that were strong that said, we're going to make this happen. And because it was art, they can get away with doing they a lot more. They could do it at the time when women weren't necessarily the business leaders. But it was like, this is art. You ladies yeah. go take that and, yeah. you know, you can do that right. thing. But it's actually an important thing. But it's an, I mean, and it's still an important thing today. Eric and I and everybody at the museum will have, whenever a new business is coming to town or a hospital is, or university is trying to attract new leadership, they'll call us and say, can we give them a tour? I mean, we do have rivers. We have great rivers, but we don't have oceans. We don't have mountains. But we've got this incredible art museum and art scene. They'll do it as a way to attract talent to Dayton so they know they're going to get a cultural life. Mm-hmm. So it's it goes back, I think, to the beginning, though. You see people actually coming in and they see it as a, a diamond. Right. Or a gem, yeah. in our case, right? Yeah. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves, and I'm sure others do, too, that we're the gem of Gem City. Um, <laughs> as we sit, you know, she specifically picked that site. I don't know if you know that, but that she picked that. There were two mansions there. Who picked it? Julia. Julia. Okay. She picked the site of where she wanted the museum to be. She wanted it to overlook the river and to look at over the city. And she's you're right at the point where the rivers divide there and where you're looking straight at the city when you're on our balcony. And yeah. she selected that and she convinced two people to give up their mansions for the museum to be built. Get out of here. I wonder what that conversation was like. Well, can you imagine? Excuse me, I'm, <laughs> I have a vision. I right. want you to tear your house down. But, uh, <laughs> and, but I think she had that much influence. And people said, well, if, she, if it's her vision, we want to be a part of it. Oh, well, she wants you. You can have what you want, right? Yeah. Now, how did you get to the museum? Well, I'm a native of Dayton. I've lived here most of my life. I was out of town for a while, but I came back, returned to the Victoria Theater Association as the vice president of development. I was there for almost seven years. And when there was a change in leadership, I was tapped to come over and lead the museum. And that was eight years ago, October 1st. I didn't think it would pass so fast. I never dreamed I would lead a museum. I went to the Dayton Art Institute for classes as a kid on Saturdays. I grew up going to the museum, but it wasn't one of those things I looked at and said, someday I'm going to lead this. But I think I've really been blessed to be able to lead such a great organization with great staff and certainly great volunteers and supporters. And then there's Eric. And then, Eric, then there's me. Yeah. How'd you Eric and I used to work together at the Victoria. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know you worked at the Victoria. Yeah, I was over there from 2002 to 2009. So Michael followed me over. Ah. <laughs> I followed him over. So yeah. yeah. So the museum has been around, like the Dayton Foundation has been around for 100 right. years, right? What do you think people don't know about it? Because a lot of people, you know, don't go there as much as I, I do. What people don't know about the museum is that you don't have to be an art scholar. You don't have to feel like you're going to come in and be bombarded with people trying to tell you dates and learn every artist. We want you to come in and walk around and find it to be a place that you enjoy being or a time when you need a respite, when you do want to learn or when you want to have fun at events, that there's really something there for everyone. And that when you come to the museum, the art will speak to you in its own way. I mean, I walk through, and when I go through, there's certain pieces I always visit because they speak to my heart. What are those pieces? There's a shin piece that is the tightrope walker. I mean, it's in the American Gallery and goes back to when I came. I felt like, you know, as someone who came from a different arts background, a performing arts background, that I was kind of walking the tightrope. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like the visual arts community has embraced me. I've certainly learned more than I ever knew, and I went to a lot of museums in my personal time. It just felt like I was on a tightrope, so it spoke to me. And then I just think, you know, there's places that 
you find where you feel like you fit, whether it goes back to people's culture, because, you know, we have a lot of wonderful collections that reflect culture from Asian to African, Oceanic, European and American and contemporary. So people find that connection. But oftentimes it's people find something special that doesn't have to do with their background. It's just beautiful or it tells a story. I hope what people find out is that they can learn a lot if they want to, but they also can come and just have a good time. We're all about a good time first. You'll learn about the art later. We just want people to feel welcome and included. And that good time has always been part of it too, right? The um, art ball. 1957, it's 1957, been, been going so on. yeah, it's 62 years now. Yeah. It was started by the Junior League of Dayton, and they got it started and then handed it over to the museum, and our associate board took it from there when the associate board was formed about 10 years after that. And it is Dayton's oldest black tie event. It has evolved too. You know, there's some people that have said, oh, I wish you still did the big band, but. It has evolved over the years for whatever the associate board wants it to be. We didn't always pick a piece of art as a theme. Oh, you didn't? Uh, Ann and Dan Davis did that when they had their art ball chairs, which seems like a no-brainer. But they had had like a night in Paris or a casino. They would plan a theme around it. And they said, why aren't we theming it around our collection? Right, make a mission. Right. For those people that only come to Art Ball, they're at least getting a little bit. They're dining in the galleries and they're getting a little bit about a piece in the collection and what it means. And I think that was really meaningful. And it has turned into our second largest fundraiser. And certainly it brings out Dayton's glitz. People love to get dressed up. So you see great gowns and tuxedos and people just have fun. That's been a really wonderful tradition and it's grown. We've seen about 800 for dinner now, which is precarious around art, but we take a lot of precautions. Our guests are always very respectful that they're getting the opportunity to dine around art. Have you ever had any problems with them? Um, not since I've been there. I think there's been one incident over the years where a glass of wine was spilled and it splashed in something and it went into conservation right away. We don't want that to happen. Right. So, you know, Curatorial works very closely with our facilities team and the events team to make sure we're doing everything we can to protect the art. That's our mission is to take care of the art, too. And having fun, you know, we just had record revenue at Oktoberfest at the end of September. And that has been 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. And how'd that even come about? Breaking in to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast and I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. Ironically enough, wink, wink, this podcast is sponsored by Dayton.com, the Gym City's undisputed top source for what to do, what to know, and what to love about Dayton. Now back to my chat with Michael and Eric. What is the connection between Oktoberfest and art? I don't know that there was necessarily a connection between art and Oktoberfest, although we've created one that's become a tradition. It started with a small group, again, of people that would ultimately go, were part of the associate board, and they were looking for another fundraiser. And when they did it the first year, they had a few hundred people come. Now we get annually between twenty five and 30,000 people come. And that's how most people, if they come, will, will be exposed to it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I remember as a kid, before the contemporary wing was built, it would all the artisans would be in the cloisters. And you would really? walk through the cloisters and all the art. It was very tight. You'd kind of be in a line. Um, so it's always been artists. Art has been connected to it. And okay. I think that's been an important part of what sets our Oktoberfest apart from other Oktoberfest is there the artisan tent. The museum is open during the day. There's food from around the world, not just German food. 
and then just a great selection of pop and rock and country and funk bands on the main stage and German fun bands in the food area and that we've always had stuff for kids to do. I really look at it as the kickoff to Dayton's Fall mm-hmm. Festival Very season. Very much so, yeah. And we are downtown Dayton's biggest festival. Community has been just so amazing of supporting the DAI and Oktoberfest. And I'll tell you, our largest attendance ever, which was over 30,000, was the September after 9-11. Is that right? And I, at the time, people had told me, I wasn't there then, but people told me, and I lived out of town, that they were afraid no one was going to come. Everybody came, and they came together to say, we're united, and we're going to get through this. And I think we we saw that some. We had our record attendance on Friday and Saturday night. We didn't on Sunday this year. But after all the things that Dayton's been through, people came out in droves because they wanted to celebrate and say, we're unified. Dayton is that way. We'll recover again. Those type of experiences, we love being part of those because... Hopefully art helps people heal and being with other people, even if you don't know them, but having fun helps people heal. And I thought it was interesting, too, that you guys played a role in hosting the event after the Klan rally. That was. Yeah, we um, it was actually before we before, did, before. Yeah, we okay. did a race relations discussion. <laughs> there was some talk about trying to have a peace protest before, but our grounds without setting up Oktoberfest for one evening wouldn't hold everybody. Right. And so we started talking about how could we be a part of that. And what I said to the NAACP is we are again a place where people come together. Why don't we have people come and talk about their feelings and and what's still wrong with our race relations, but also what's right. And we set the tone from the beginning. I said, this is gonna be a respectful place because that's what the museum should be, a place of dialogue. And there were some people that got a little heated, but other people turned to them and said, remember, we're being respectful of each other, let's talk it out. And you saw people at the end, they didn't want to leave, that were sitting together and having private conversations. That's what the, I mean, see the art, but to, to bring people together. What's the next 100 years going to look like for the museum? We're at the end of this centennial year in February, but we're going to celebrate some through 2020 because we go into the next year trying to finish up our campaign and we're trying to raise $27 million. We've raised almost 16 of it. So we have a ways to go. Um, I hope the community will get us there. But I think the next 100 years, we'll continue to see care of the community's collection, care of its building, a place again to gather for life celebrations. I think we'll see the collection grow. And I think our biggest goal as we go into the next century is to make sure that the museum is available to everyone. Whether someone can pay or not, we have ways to do that. Memberships, you can check out to the museum and the libraries now. We have $5 Thursdays once a month. We have days that are sponsored for free because it's expensive to run the museum. Right now, it's $17,000 a day to run the museum. $17,000? A day. That's why we have to charge something. Because they weren't charging at first. When I first got here, there was no charge. There was never a charge. Um, And that charge went into place before I got here. But we massaged it a bit and added some more opportunities for people that may not have the money right now to do it, to have access. One of the things we've committed to is we never turn a child's tour away. So a school, we won't turn them away. And we've got bus scholarships and ticket scholarships and because we have to build the next audience. And kids that aren't getting art education as like we did in school as kids need to be exposed to it so they, one, appreciate it, but two, understand what it means to the community and that they're welcome. If you've never been invited in, 
you don't feel welcome. Right. And it doesn't matter. You don't think it's for you. Yeah. It doesn't matter your race, your age, your gender. If you haven't been invited in, well, then they don't want. One of the things I love these opportunities to say is we want everyone. And we worked really hard to build partnerships with different parts of our community. And if there's someone that's interested in doing a partnership, we hope they reach out to us so we can find a way to do it if we can. We've really focused over the last few years on re-engaging with the Jewish community, the African-American community, the LGBT plus community, and so on. Because those were people that approached me right away and said, we don't feel as welcome as we used to, or we've never felt welcome. Right. I think we've taken down a lot of those barriers, but we also say it's nothing that's just fixed. You don't want to slide back into old way. So one of the things we do when we're hiring or when we're doing an exhibition is saying, are we providing something for people different than the people at the table? Or do we need to bring more people to the table? People are starting to see some differences. I was really proud we brought in the first piece in the collection that is a deliberate same-sex couple. That's pretty exciting. It's a painting. We've never had that kind of representation. So if someone's gay or they don't see themselves, now we're seeing that. We brought in, it was the same artist, she brought us two pieces. We believe to be the first African-American couple that is not, besides a photograph, I will say besides a photograph, but a painting of a couple that's not enslaved. Really? That's crazy. And it hangs in our contemporary gallery right now. When you walk in, it's right there. It's by an artist named McKinsey. She was a native of Ohio. That she, is interesting. She does these great portraits. And she approached us with some and said, would you like to select some? We don't just take anybody. She had to have quality work. And right. work is beautiful. And That's just museum. something you don't think about. You don't think like this museum never had that right. before until so you think about it. Part step of back. our collection mission now mm -hmm. is that we're collecting when we have funds we are collecting from communities that are underrepresented, whether people of color or, or different nationality. If we can, we will. And a specific effort to collect women artists. Women aren't underrepresented as subjects, but they're certainly underrepresented as artists. I don't know if you know the contemporary artist, Kara Walker. She's African-American. She does silhouettes that talk about civil war and slavery and folklore and their huge they're beautiful but she also does prints we just acquired our first carol walker print it can't be out all the time because it's a print but to be able to say that the museum with acquisition funds got a piece of hers in the collection is really meaningful and when people look at our museum they look for these certain people they don't have it they wonder why we've got a great curatorial team that is always looking for those opportunities to bring significant artists into the collection that's awesome that artists playing this pivotal role in the community as a leader, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think you see it in other aspects of the city that art is important to Dayton. Right. It's important as they're developing the river. Um, they've been great to bringing us to the table and saying we want art to have a presence. We don't know what it looks like yet. Asking the DAI to say, come talk to us about what it means to put public art out. And so we're having those discussions. We've worked really hard. A few years back, I don't know if you remember, we became zoned into downtown Dayton. Yeah. We weren't. I credit our mayor for that and saying, you need to be part of the downtown renaissance and the scene. Now we're at the table. The downtown Dayton partnership is making plans. They get our input and we get to hear other people's inputs. I think being interwoven like that only allows art to be more a part of our lives going forward into the next hundred years. What do you think the museum has lasted a hundred years? I think the museum tells a story of our community 
through the art. I think it's a place that you can tell by the collections what people's interests were at certain points in time, collectors in our community. But I also think it survived because throughout it's been a gathering place. During the war, it was a gathering place. During times of crisis, during times of celebration, people come to the museum as part of their life because there's spaces that they can gather. And I think, you know, our community has been blessed with an outstanding collection. People always say for a city the size of Dayton, we just always like to say we have a world-class art collection at the DAI. And I think that attracts people not only from our community, but from around the United States and the world. We have people that come to visit specific pieces, scholars. um, And I I don't think that would have happened if it hadn't grown into this magnificent collection over the last hundred years. How did it even come about? We started as basically a school, and there's a, it's a little blurry line, but we say we started as a school. There was a group of citizens who wanted to teach each other the arts and crafts movement, and I always say not like crafts we think of today. Yeah. Um, but they started teaching each other, and people got wind of it and said, well, I'd like to learn that. So they started teaching classes, and a school was born. Interesting, though, we were originally the Dayton Museum of Arts because they did show some people's pieces and things like that. And later on transitioned when we were a full-blown school and a museum into the Dayton Art Institute. Okay. Um, so, What's the difference between an art institute and a museum? Is there well, a, a museum wouldn't have necessarily had a school. Okay. So the institute is the word where people went to learn and study. And at the Dayton Art Institute, you used to be able to get a four-year fine arts degree. Uh, and there's still people walking around because the last class graduated in 1975. The school closed in 74 and they graduated in 75. It started in downtown Dayton at the corner of St. Clair and Monument. I always like to kind of point out it's the empty field right now across from Riverscape where they put a tent for beer. Oh, really? That's where it is. That <laughs> so, so it's not in its original location. I don't think no, I knew that. it was in a house. They used to say the... The mansion, it was more of a house, but it was a big (laughs) downtown house that a group of people bought, started teaching classes and showing art. That was in 1919, and then they completed and moved into the building in 1930, the new museum, which was much larger, obviously, than the house. When they moved into the new museum in 1930, they had 200 objects in the collection. Today, we have upwards of 26,000. Now, how do you get that much? Initially, it all started with people donating pieces. Our original pieces were Japanese ink block prints. And that went back because the original founding people, they were interested in Asian art. We have very limited what we call acquisition funds, but sometimes people will give us money to buy. Sometimes we will get gifts from people's estates that's restricted to buying art. But the majority of our collection was given through generous collectors. The collection grew, and then the pieces they bought became, you know, the artists became internationally known, and they really felt like the community deserved to see them. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. It was awesome to be with you, as always. Thanks. Thanks. That was cool. Now, don't you feel smarter and more artistic? I know I do. Take Michael up on his offer and pay the Art Institute a visit. There are some great exhibitions going on right now that you can read about on the museum's website. The What Had Happened Was podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson, in the WHIO Radio Studios. The show's artwork is done by my good friend, Troy Liming of TL Creates. See you later, alligators, and also, you crocodiles. Bye-bye.